The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned those, their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. The icon at the entrance of the nave is called Christ Pentocrator. Christ all-powerful or almighty is what it's often translated as. And it's the term that's used to translate the Old Testament name of God that in Hebrew is Yahweh Sabaoth, which usually gets translated as the Lord of hosts. It's meant to signify God's battle name. It's the name that God takes upon himself when he is going to do war against the enemies of his people. And if you were able to see it when you came in, you'll know that this icon isn't necessarily comforting. Christ is not smiling. He actually looks rather stern. And he's holding a book of the Gospels and raising his hand to teach. What's fascinating about this icon is that the face of Christ is very asymmetrical, intentionally so. So if, if you want to, you can go online and, and see images of it cut in half and then mirrored and it's completely different. Each side is, is very, very different. Even in his eyes, one is looking downward and the other is looking a little bit up, straight ahead. The iconographer that originally wrote this icon did this very intentionally. The two sides of his face are meant to represent his two natures, that he is fully God and fully man, that he is both condescending and humble, looking down with pity upon his people, reaching down into the very depths of our sinful state to bring us life. And he is also, at the same time, the all-powerful, perfect creator of all that exists. He is the Lord who brought his people out of Egypt with a strong hand and a mighty arm. And he is the only one by whom all people will be judged. So the icon sort of ref reflects the truth. He's both comforting and not. 
In our gospel lesson this evening, we are met with what seems, anyway, a very different kind of Jesus than the one that we talked about last week. Here we're met with a fiery-eyed Jesus who comes through with an anger that seems out of control as he goes about purifying the temple. But we have to understand with this scene, as with most of the scenes recorded by the evangelists in their gospel accounts, is that Jesus is acting deliberately. He's not somehow out of control here in this one moment. He is working in concert with the Spirit and in a way that is richly symbolic. Even the way that St. John goes about recording this story for us is designed for us to encounter here the crucified and risen Christ. The other gospel writers put this story toward the end of Jesus' ministry when he enters Jerusalem on his way to crucifixion. But John places it here at the beginning for multiple theological reasons, many of which most of us will probably never know. But one, one of his reasons is that he wants, to, wants us to see Christ's entire ministry as one is, that is cleansing temple worship. His entire ministry is one that points entirely to the sign that he offers, which he will tell the crowds later is the sign of Jonah, three days in the belly of a fish. And here, the sign he gives is the destruction and resurrection of the temple, which is his body. Even more interesting, St. John places this scene between two striking stories. It comes right after the wedding at Cana, where Jesus has shown himself to be celebrant in chief, turning water into wine at a wedding feast. And it's right before Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where he tells the teacher of the law that rebirth is required for all who would take part in God's kingdom, that rebirth comes through water and spirit, Jesus tells him. What is figured for us in these stories of Cana and his meeting with Nicodemus is baptism and the Eucharist feast of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then directly in between them, Jesus is completely reorienting temple worship by declaring his body to be the temple. If you were with us for our series on worship last summer, you may may remember that the temple is the place where time and eternity intersect. It's the place where God's glory dwells. The temple was a microcosm. It was a miniature universe. It was to be a mirror of the universe with the Holy of Holies behind the curtain of the firmament, right? The temple represents the place where God dwells in an eternal presence and where we dwell, bound by time. This is similar to a text that we looked at several weeks ago when Jesus tells his disciples that he is essentially Jacob's ladder, the gate between heaven and earth the place where our temporal world meets eternity in God's presence. At the end of our lesson that we just had read, St. John tells us that after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They didn't get it in the moment. It took until after Easter for them to understand what was happening and to really believe. And this is a phenomenon that is recorded multiple times throughout the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And at first glance, it almost seems like a throwaway line, right? 
Or maybe just a way of describing how dim-witted the disciples are, that they can't really get what's happening while it's happening. But it's actually much more than that. It's actually trying to get us to recognize a deep theological reality, which is that Christ reveals himself to us as the crucified and risen Lord. This is the only Jesus available to any of us, even those who were with him in the flesh. They couldn't see him until he was crucified and resurrected. It is the spirit of the crucified and risen Christ that opens our eyes to see clearly the revelation of God himself in victory upon the cross. That's why Paul can rejoice at the end of his little soliloquy there. Who is going to get me out of this body of death and set me free from the prison of sin? Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ is the one. But he knows that because he himself met the crucified and risen Christ. And it is this revelation, this divine light that is refracted through the cross and the empty tomb that is to give light and life to us as the scriptures form our life together. This is why the crucified Christ leads us into worship and back out into the world each week. It's the reason that we celebrate communion every week, not as an add-on to our life together, but as the center of our life. It is in participating in the Eucharist feast together that we are being incorporated into the temple, the mystical body of Christ. And it is right here, our sacramental participation in Christ, that serves as a hinge in our understanding of the law. As St. Paul has been making his case for the gospel message in Romans, he's done so by demonstrating that an efficacious righteousness doesn't come through keeping the Mosaic law, but rather it comes by way of participation in Christ through faith, repentance, and baptism as a gift from God to his people. This is what we talked about last week, right? Even your sins can't rise up and condemn you because you have been given as a free gift the righteousness of Christ. St. Paul says that the law serves to highlight our sin, our inability to keep it, and that by God's grace, we have died to the law in the body of Jesus Christ. But it's as if Paul is actually a smart person, and he anticipates our next move. The way that we'll shift our self-justification from one category to another it's as if all of a sudden we're like, okay, sure, the law can't save us, so it's terrible. Boo. We don't want anything to do with it. And now we're justifying ourselves because we're not, you know, bound by the law. Isn't it great? But to view the law like that, Paul is essentially saying, he's like trying to use a chainsaw as a lawnmower and then getting upset when it doesn't work very well. The law was not meant to bring life. It was meant to illuminate how far we had fallen from life because we had fallen away from the source of life. As we sang in our psalm, the law of the Lord is good and beautiful. It gives joy to the heart and light to the eyes. It refreshes the soul. But so often it doesn't feel that way, does it? And I think it's here that we must return again and again to a basic understanding of the world. 
Because too often we are content to think of sin as just the bad stuff that we do. You've now heard read for you the Ten Commandments in their entirety twice this evening. So it would be easier for us to start thinking that sin is lying or dishonoring our parents or coveting or dancing a bit too closely with the lust and anger that can become adultery and murder. But what we don't often allow ourselves to realize is that those transgressions are the flower of sin, not its root. And in fact, this is what's on display for us in Christ's cleansing of the temple. It's a revelation that our sin is rooted in the fact that we do not give God true worship. We don't. We grasp at our own lives constantly. Our first parents did it, and we have been doing it ever since. We were created to priest God's world, to gather up the gifts of his creation and offer them up to him in sacrifice and praise. That's why Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. But in subscribing to the lie of the devil, we forfeited that role and have instead tried to grasp at the world for ourselves, offering it to ourselves alone rather than to him who made it. David Fagerberg is a a theologian. In his beautiful book, Consecrating the World, he says that the fall, when Adam and Eve chose sin over God, the fall was the forfeiture of our liturgical career. We were created to gather up the world in praise and work it out as priests for God. And when we refused him, we forfeited our liturgical career. But he goes on. When Lucifer willed to take glory to himself, he was rebelling against his liturgical status. Sin is idolatrous from the start. It is failure to give right adoration, to rightly glorify, to worship righteously. All of those other things, those other transgressions, are simply the result of our refusal to worship God rightly and righteously. And what we recognize in the gospel is that it is Christ alone who offers true and pure worship to the Father. He alone refused to capitulate to the misguided human project of self-worship, of turning the world into an end in itself, rather than a means to encounter God. Why did Jesus die on the cross? One answer is given in John's quotation of the psalmist. Zeal for his father's house consumed him. His desire for true worship was so pure and so offensive to us poor creatures, gone so far off the rails, that we killed him for it. But even here, there's a little hiccup. And it's one that our brothers and sisters in the Orthodox Church capture perfectly in their Eucharist prayer that they say every week. It says this, The night in which he was given up, or rather gave himself up for the life of the world, he took bread. You see, it's not just that our anger toward him for his pure worship sought to kill him. It's that his true worship of the Father included giving himself up for the life of the world. He was willing to go that far. 
And we enter into that self-giving through the waters of baptism and are carried forth into the new life by taking up our cross and participating in his death and life over and over again. And this is what we mean when we say that we are living our lives hidden with Christ in God. We are being incorporated into his true worship by being incorporated into his death and resurrection. And in so doing, we are being incorporated into his humility to turn again and see how far we have fallen short of the goodness of his law. The God who gave the law is not a different God from Jesus Christ. It's the same one. He's calling us back to this goodness, this way of being, and he's doing it through humility. Here's Fagerberg again, and we'll end with this. He says, the first Adam did not have equality with God, but grasped at it. The second Adam did have equality with God, but he emptied himself into only one desire, to obey the Father, to love the Father, to be near the Father. His whole thought, his whole delight was in the thought, in the will, in the being of his Father. The joy of the Lord's life, that which made it life to him, was the Father. Of him he was always thinking. To him he was always turning. Fagerberg says, I suppose most men have some thought of pleasure or satisfaction or strength, which they turn when action pauses. Life becomes for a moment still, and the wheel sleeps on its own swiftness. With Jesus, it needed no pause of action, no rush of renewed consciousness to send him home. His thought was ever and always his Father. To its home in the heart of the Father, his heart ever turned, for that was his treasure house, the jewel of his mind, the mystery of his gladness, claiming all degrees and shades of delight, from peace and calmest content to ecstasy. His life was hid in God. May our lives be hid with Christ in his Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.